0: So today is the second and last week of our series, My Most Important Question. It's a series that we do every, uh, every summer, every year. It's one of our most popular series. And um, the, the premise of this series is that oftentimes churches ask us to leave our questions at the door. Um, and that's not what we believe our faith is about. In fact, Jesus asked more questions than he answered. And so what we believe is that it's actually in sitting with our questions, in wrestling through our questions, in not being able to answer our questions sometimes, that we actually grow and become more mature and learn how to handle those spaces of uncertainty and conflict and challenge. And so every time we do this series, we invite members of our community to share with us their most important question, their biggest struggle of faith whether it's one that they are currently wrestling with or one that, they, that, that dominated most of, the, of their lives. And um, the, in doing this, they, they follow the example of the man in Mark 9 who said to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. And that statement captures the paradox of faith. There are things that we know and that we cling to, and there are things that we don't. And we just go, we just take the next step, even if we're not 100% sure. And so, this morning we have uh, three, of our, our, three of our friends sharing with us. Um, I will introduce them, all three of them at once, I'll, then I'll pray for them, and then they will come up and share uh, their most important question. First up, uh, we have Darren Vander Tang who will be sharing. Darren is an artist, a writer, and an explorer of the world. She grew up in Africa, and she was an exploration geological cartographer and part of the team that opened a gold mine and an oil field. You can ask her about that afterwards. <laughs> uh, she has family in the UK, Australia, and Finland, as well as here in DC. She is passionate about art, nuts and chocolate, and writes her life's adventures on her blog. After Darren, Eric Brown will be sharing. Eric moved, from D- moved to DC in 2009 from North Carolina. He has a twin called Derek Brown. That's not, that's completely serious. Uh, And if you follow him on Facebook, you may have seen him in some costume for Comic-Con. Eric also serves as one of our elders, so, and he loves it when you call him Elder Brown. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, uh, Akai Johnson will be sharing. Akai proudly hails from Portland, Oregon, but after nearly a decade in D.C., has come to consider the district home. He has been attending Christ City for three years and surviving Kid City for two. (laughs) So let me pray for them and then um, invite them up. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us in all of the ups and downs of our lives. We thank you that you are with us in the joys and we thank you that you are with us in the sorrows that you are with us in the moments that we take hold of, and you are in the, with us in the moments where we are completely helpless. And God, as our, as our brothers and sisters come and share their most important question, would you give us the ears to hear? Would you give us the capacity to hold their stories responsibly and carefully, to discern what you may be saying to us in their words and the courage to respond to whatever it is that you would have us do. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Can we welcome Darren? Uh,
1: Good morning, church. Um, my most important question is, why is it so hard to know God and his design for your life? This is a question that I have been struggling with most of my life. If God created us for a purpose, why is it so hard to find it? Um, others may have found their path easily, but it hasn't been like that for me. I'm Darren. I arrived in D.C. two years ago, just about two years ago when I retired. Moving here is part of my life's journey. I don't think we ever arrive anywhere. We're on our way moving forward. But I want to share three incidents with you that convinced me that God has a design and when he intervenes in your life, it is to show you the direction in which to go. So a little bit of background, I was born in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, to parents who belonged to a really fundamentalist religion and church, and my parents were extremely strict and fanatically religious. As children, we weren't allowed to do anything wrong, otherwise we were severely punished. So I grew up with this idea that God was only there to punish you. We were like filthy rags, ready to be thrown into hell and I could never really please God. As a child, you experience God through your parents, and I could never please them either. I was there to perform to become this perfect example of Christian living, which of course, for a child, as you all know, is impossible. The good thing, though, was that I did learn the Bible back to front, and I learned every verse week by week, and learned all the stories. My two favorite Bible characters were Daniel and Joseph. I loved the stories of them being in exile and having dreams and visions, and all the miracle stories. So the the only love that I really experienced at that time was through my grandparents and through aunts. So I left home when I was 16 and went to work and live in the town. I met and married a young soldier. The country was at war with Britain at the time, having just declared unilateral independence from Britain. Nineteen years and three children later, we were divorced. It was hard to find help in a church when you had problems in your marriage because you were expected to be this perfect person and having a perfect Christian marriage and holding it all together. But this turned out to be the turning point in my life. I was absolutely broken not only mentally emotionally and spiritually but physically as well i had a pinched nerve in my neck and such severe back pain which paralyzed my arm and i never thought that i'd be able to work again this made me really question what was god's plan for my life i was in a really bad place being a single parent having to support the kids alone, and moving to a new country. One morning, just before I was due to leave for Johannesburg to start my new life, I was in my bedroom reading the Bible, and I came across Psalm 34. And for the first time, it was as if the Lord was really speaking to me. So I'll read you the verses that really caught my attention. Was from verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, their faces are not covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you His holy people, for those who fear him lack no good thing. The lions may grow hungry and weak, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. At times like that, I I was feeling that God might strike me down at any time because I was breaking the commandments. I felt I was being judged by the church and my family members. I was just feeling a complete failure in my marriage and my spiritual life. Did I really believe this God who was hating my sin, hating the divorce and the consequences? Did he really mean what he wrote? I was so broken spiritually. But in desperation, I decided to believe this God, the one who said he would take care of me. I had no one else to turn to. I just had to believe it in my heart and not in my head. Because up to that time, it was just words. I had been taught to believe every word that was written in the King James Version. And words are not a person. I had to experience God for myself. In my brokenness, I called out to God, and I told him I would believe what he said. And that was when the miracle started to happen. Lord provided for me, and within two months in Johannesburg, I had a good-paying job and a small apartment for the kids and I. That provision helped me to believe God was real and that he cared. Unlike the young lions who lacked, I really lacked nothing. After having experienced this provision, I started to hunger and thirst to get to know this God that I would not known before. I found a wonderful Methodist church who preached love. Their whole focus was on love and loving people. And broken as I was, they took me in and where I experienced huge amounts of healing. I'd never been taught about the Holy Spirit. Now I was experiencing the Holy Spirit. This was a completely new journey for me, getting to know this God of love. I had to unlearn so much of what I had been taught, and it's still part of my journey, overwriting black and white thinking with grace, and trying to find out the design for my life. Now as a teenager, I had visions and dreams of being an artist and a writer. I could not pursue those, because I was taught you had to sacrifice what you desired. It was all about crucifying yourself and no desire you had was good because it didn't line up what God, with what God wanted. I had to learn and what I now believe is that God gives you the dreams and the visions and the desires because that's how he has wired you when, to be able to provide for you and to be a blessing to others. The next part of my journey was when I moved to Cape Town. I had grown and (coughs) matured in my faith and was running divorce recovery workshops. You know, if someone tells you about water, I've got a glass of water here, I'm going to tell you it feels good, it tastes good, it quenches your thirst, but if you don't actually drink that water, you don't know what experience water really is. So that's what it's like with love. I was blessed enough to remarry. My second husband was kind and loving and we had a good relationship but he was a diabetic and 15 years into the marriage he got really really ill with vascular dementia becoming a completely different person who was really difficult to cope with. The church we went to did not uh, understand dementia and he wanted to go back to the Dutch Reformed Church where he grew up. He was originally from Holland. So I went with him where I had to completely relearn my spiritual language and my spirituality because it was not in my mother tongue. Yet I found that church community the most amazing love and compassion And it was here that I learned about the spiritual gifts, the next piece in the jigsaw puzzle of finding God's design for my life. I learned about working with my spiritual gifts. Not having had a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit, it wasn't the charismatic gifts at all. It was compassion, teaching, serving, creativity, intercession and worship. And by using them, I would be able to be much more effective in my Christian life and in my life in general. And so my concept of God changed again. He's given me these gifts. Those were the desires I had when I was a child. I wanted to paint and write. That's what he gave me. That's what the tool that he's given me to provide for me and to serve others. And all these little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle of this God who loves me, were starting to come together. Well, after my husband died, I wanted to be near one of my children. And I was visiting my daughter in Australia, trying to see if I could get a visa to go and live there, which I couldn't. But one day, I decided to go into the art gallery in Brisbane. And while I was perusing a painting, of a, a stranger came up to me. And he asked, you know the story of this painting? I looked at him and asked him his name. He said it was Barry. Then he proceeded to tell me the story of the painting. But very quickly, he just switched into a completely spiritual conversation. And I thought, what? This is very weird for a complete stranger to come and talk to me like that. And I looked at him closely to see whether he was a weirdo or whether he was an angel. <laughs> <laughs> he was talking about miracles. He said, a miracle is not the circumstance or the event. It is t- the timing of the, miracle, uh, of the circumstance or the event. When he said that, I knew he had spoken a word of truth. And he wound up the conversation and having obviously given me the message, said as he left, he pointed at me and said, and the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, I just... was tears running down my face, I was so emotional. I had obviously spoken to an angel. I went back to South Africa and some months later, an old friend gave me a contact for a job in the UK. While I was visiting my son there, I went for an interview to that company. And they said they had something in the pipeline. And if it came through, when would I be available to start? So I told them well, I couldn't come before October that year and they said they had intended to take over another retirement home and they were wanting to take it in October. And immediately I thought of what the angel Barry had said to me about the timing. Well, I got the job and the Lord had a sense of humour and he came to teach me grace as well because I worked for nine years looking after the same people who had the fundamental and legalistic legalistic beliefs that I had grown up with and the generation that had voted into power those politicians who had caused me to leave my country. During that nine years I was in the UK, I had time to persevere with those gifts and talents that the Lord had given me. And God provided a wonderful mentor for me in the organisation I was working with, Uh, with my writing, giving me opportunities to publish articles and photographs. So I knew that this was all part of God's design. Yes, he does plan your path. And I was learning that God's path is an exciting adventure, day by day, not knowing what each day will bring, but trusting anyway. And so my spiritual journey continues, God leading me deeper and deeper into his mystery. Sometimes it's tangible in his love and provision, and then just when I think I've got it, it dissipates until the next time he shows me or teaches me something. So why is it so hard to know God and his design for your life? Knowing God and his design for your life, it's a journey. It's not a one-time event. It's a long process, A friend of mine I spoke to this week, she put it in a kind of in a nutshell. She said that when you were conceived, God put his blueprint into your genes. You have a design, but you have to (coughs) work on the construction to get the final product, which in turn you get to hand back to God so he can use you for his purpose in bringing him joy and helping others. So I had to change my whole concept of God from a judge to the lover of my soul. I had to change my perspective of myself to that of a beloved and not a filthy rag. I had to experience God for myself, letting the Holy Spirit teach me who he is, unlearning the things I'd been taught as a child. I had to seek it out and actively pursue it as my life events unfolded. He puts circumstances and people and events into your life, so that, I can, so that I could experience him tangibly through them. I'm learning to know that lo- knowing that my God loves and cares for me and has planned my path. Even though I don't understand it all the time, I must listen with my heart and with the expectancy that he's speaking to me in whatever I'm doing in this moment that his spirit can come through. I've experienced the love that I needed to change my concept of God. Jesus came in human form so people could experience God in the flesh. We all need someone we can relate to and trust is that person who became like us so we could relate to him as God. I also need to be Christ to others so they can relate to God through me as he uses me as a channel to others for others to experience his love. I'm now entering the fulfillment of my dreams of being an artist and writer, and I know that this is the design that God created me for, but I still don't know how I'm gonna use it. So that's what I want to leave you with today. Your spiritual life is a journey, it's not a destination. Your destination is heaven. So thank you for letting me share my most important question. I'm still learning the answers.
2: <laughs> Aloha. Aloha, everyone. By way of introduction, my name is Eric. I'm from the great state of North Carolina. Um, I am a nerd extraordinaire. I am the co-lead of the small group known as The Nerds. That's my shout out for you people. Um, I am a proud elder of Christ City Church, and I am the excited fiance to Betty (laughs) Malamba. Now, my question is, why can't I feel the Spirit of God? To give my question a little bit of context, you have to know my background. I'm from a small Pentecostal church in the middle of nowhere. That church was almost entirely filled with my family and it was pastored by my grandfather. It was, as my grandfather would say, a Holy Ghost-filled church. My home church was a place where people felt felt deeply, and doubt and questions were generally seen as a sign of a lack of faith. I want to be clear. Going to my home church is a blast. You have people running around the church. They're dawning out, and they're dancing in the spirit. You can feel the electricity in the air. Well, it seems like everyone can feel it except for me. And that solitude was bad, but it was bearable. What I found unbearable was the feeling that the Holy Ghost was central to salvation and connection to God, and therefore rejection from God when I wasn't feeling it. We would have trainings where people would learn to speak in tongues. Uh, People would go up to the altar. They would fall out in the spirit. All of these are signs that God is moving in the lives of the congregation. There's all signs for people except for me. Now again, at least I found solace in the fact that my siblings and my parents were in the same boat. There were nights when my parents would be coming home at church, and they would talk about how they weren't dancing in the spirit. But one Sunday, my parents felt it too. I was happy for them, I suppose. But also a little jealous, and a little bit more isolated. Mm. In time, I learned what did connect, I read the Bible more deeply, trying to connect to God in ways that felt natural and sincere. Those awkward moments became fewer and further between, but they still did happen. Um, I remember a time I was called up to altar for prayers right before college, uh, so of course we all have to go up there. Um, my grandfather lays hands on me, he's pushing back on me, Now, what is supposed to happen is I'm supposed to fall out in the spirit. Now, what does happen is I kind of lean back and forth like a couple of times, and then I like just kind of awkwardly tap dance back to my seat. Um, it was awkward. Um, I think it was at this point <laughs> I decided I'm putting the spiritual thing behind me. Like, it was not for me, and that's okay. Like, I know how to still connect with God through His Word, through His community. And so I did. And so I have. And I've been told many times that God speaks to us through our friends, through our community, and through his word. And I sincerely believe that. There are times that words spoken by people out here have spoken directly to my heart, been a balm to my soul. And I know that those are words from God. And honestly, for a long time, I felt like I'm satisfied. Um... And then between college and D.C., I was moving to places that were, quote-unquote, less spiritual. Um, At least where I wasn't constantly feeling the pressure to feel something that I just wasn't feeling. That said, every so often I'd hear a story from a friend about a visceral encounter with the Lord. And those waves of doubt would wash back over me. Over and over I would push it back down because I was fine. It wasn't for me. I didn't need it. Um, and this will bubble up to the surface occasionally, um, but the moment I accepted it was something deeper, was in the midst of a conversation with Betty one afternoon. We're at her house, and I don't recall how we got there, but we were talking about our struggles and our spiritual lives, and I couldn't find the words to describe what I was feeling. The clip from the TV show Lost popped into my head. Um, for community fans, if you know Abed, he understands all of his concepts through pop culture references. This is basically me. Um, <laughs> um, but I knew it captured the feeling, and I showed her the clip. It was from one of my favorite characters from the show, Ben Linus, played by Malcolm Emerson, um, He's confronting the man who we followed, Jacob. Um, as a particular part of the change that instantly felt like what my heart was saying to God. Um, now, I don't want to spoil anything, and I doubt I can handle the skill of Michael Emerson, so I'm only going to quote a bit of it. Um, when I dared to ask to see you myself, I was told, you have to wait. You have to be patient. But when he asked to see you, he gets marched straight up here like he was Moses. So why him? What is it that is so wrong with me? What about me? Now, the funniest thing is that I've listened to this clip a million times, many before that moment, many after, and each time I would think about the final line, what about me? I marveled at how arrogant and demanding Ben was being, and I felt like I was being arrogant and demanding towards God. It wasn't literally until this week, as I'm writing this up, that I read the sentence before, and it added some context. What was it that was so wrong with me? What about me? It's in this moment that i realized Ben isn't just selfishly asking why he can't be special. Well, That's not the only reason he's asking it. Um, He's asking what's wrong with him, that Jacob wouldn't speak to him or acknowledge him. What is it about him that is so bad? And it was in that moment, if I was being honest, that I was honest enough with myself to realize that's what I was feeling towards God. God's speaking to me. I'm not feeling his presence because something is wrong with me. Now, in my brain, I don't think that's true. But there's a script and a narrative that keeps running. And it's telling me something different. Vindicated by the fact that I, in fact, have not had this experience. I would like to say that now I've had this revelation, and all is well. But I still don't know the answer to the question that I (coughs) posed: Why can't I feel the spirit of God? I believe that people can feel the Spirit of God. Um, I've seen it. I've heard it literally all of my life. As much as I would like to say, alternatively, I could just say, I have felt it. I just didn't realize it or acknowledge it. That would feel easy and simple, but I don't think it's true, at least not the way that I felt the Spirit. I've seen and heard of the Spirit overwhelming people and overtaking them. So I come back to the question, is it possible for me? Is there something wrong with me? That's a harder question. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I know that we're all blessed with different gifts. Perhaps mine are not to connect with God through feeling, but through understanding. I mean, that's consistent. It's consistent with who I am, for those who know me well. Maybe there's not something wrong. There's just something different. Alternatively, maybe I'm just putting too much weight on this. Like, I have to acknowledge they meant well. My church is great. I love inviting people down to my church, in part to see their reactions. Um, But, like, it was a place that overemphasized feeling. It was a place that overemphasized the gifts of the Spirit. And so I think to uh, First Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gifts of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing which at least to me is to say, the thing that matters most is love. God's love for us and our love for each other. And I've I've felt that, I know I have. Now, does that mean that I don't still long for that feeling? It doesn't. Um, I still long for it and I still think that that's, I think I've moved from thinking that I need to push that away to thinking that I need to try to embrace that somehow. Even if I don't know how, even if it's painful. But when I hear that verse, I would like to say that it tells me that I'll feel okay if I never feel that transcendent mystical moment. And like the truth is, like I will. It's not the worst thing that will ever happen to me. But I'll still feel some loss and I'll still feel some rejection. However, I have to keep coming back to First Corinthians again. I sincerely believe I have felt the greater of these, the love of God and the love of others. And for now, that has to be enough.
3: Uh, Before I get started, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't take uh, this opportunity, Um, something that's been weighing on me a little bit. Um, A lot of you know my wonderful wife, Ife. Baby, why don't you just go ahead and stand a little bit? (laughs) Can everyone see her? (laughs) Uh, So, you know my wife, uh, she used to do announcements quite regularly, AKA her stand-up comedy routines. And a couple years ago, uh, she made a joke about me staying home from church to watch the World Cup. And that joke is now memorialized and recorded for all of time, people will know I skipped out on church and Jesus to watch the World Cup. So I really debated and thought about starting this by making a joke about your morning breath or something like that. Um, But I decided against it, I decided against it because I love you, and I would never embarrass you like that in front of the whole church." That was wholly unrelated to what I wanted to talk about, but it just <laughs> went on my chest so hard. Um, so I'm Akai, and my most important question is, are there bad people? So uh, before I used to be a prosecutor, uh, which means that if the police arrested someone and they thought there was a crime, they would bring them to my office and we would decide whether they should be charged with a crime and what they should be charged with. Um, but before I became a prosecutor, I really thought about being a public defender uh, because as a Christian, I felt like that was the more Christian thing to do, right? To kind of intercede on behalf of others, to speak for those um, who no one else will speak for. Uh, so I interviewed to be a public defender in LA um, and the Lord just didn't have it in the cards for me, like really, really didn't have it in the cards for me. So in LA, you get a score um, from like 50 to 100 um, of whether you'd be a good fit for the job. Um, Knew I bombed the interview, so I was like at home, waiting, knew I was gonna fail, but just kind of waiting to see what the score was. And I got the letter, um, and usually they like write a score on it. Um, Instead, they had just like circled right around the 50, and I'm like, okay, well damn. I'm not meant to be a public defender, Um, I'm going to be a prosecutor, which I ended up becoming here in DC. Um, And so when you're a prosecutor, a young lawyer, you know, you don't start out with homicides, you start out with um, less serious stuff. Um, And having this notion that Christians should really have empathy and intercede for people, I always was focused on wanting to have empathy for the people I prosecuted. And that was pretty easy when I started. So, for example, one time I had a case with this college couple that went to the cheesecake on a date. And the young man paid for the meal, um, bought his date some cheesecake that she could take home, and then they went to the metro. And while they're sitting waiting for the train, the guy says, all right, so you're going to come back to my place? And she goes, no. So then he sit there, kind of stewing, just waiting for the train to come. And his train comes, but not her train. So he's sitting waiting. He's waiting, he's waiting, and as soon as his train comes and the doors are about to close, he snatches her cheesecake and tries to jump on the train, Right? Unfortunately for him, she was fleet of foot. She chased him onto the train, smacked him repeatedly, and took her cheesecake back. Um, she smacked him until other guys on the train pulled her off of him and held her until the police came. So they bring the case to my office, obviously not hard to empathize with this poor, poor soul, he stole her cheesecake, cheesecake is legit, we didn't charge the case, right? Real easy to have empathy for her and her situation. (laughs) Um, But then you know, the longer in your office, the more serious the cases get, and the harder and harder it can be to have empathy for some of the people you're prosecuting. Uh, So particularly, I had a case once with a 12 year old girl, Um, let's just call her Amira. Um, Amira was this very charismatic young black girl, um, grew up in kind of a tough circumstance, but had a lot of younger nieces and nephews that she really took care of. And um, one thing she loved to do with them was play Call of Duty. So she would go over to her aunt's house and play Call of Duty and kind of watch her younger nieces and nephews. And she did that one night. And uh, she was playing Call of Duty. Everyone else went to sleep, um, except her uncle, uh, who was about 36, I think, at the time. And Amira fell asleep playing Call of Duty. And um, and you know, with kids, they just the way they describe stuff really sticks with you. She um, described it as being on the floor and feeling this weight on top of her. And the guy had these kind of rough locks, and she said she could feel them moving up and down her cheek, and she could feel his like breath on her neck. And she described it as him sounding like he was out of breath, like he was running. And um, it was just hard to talk to her. Um, and to hear her go through that, and to hear um, her tell that story so detached from it like she was trying to distance herself from what happened and then you really start to think you know can I have empathy for him like how could you do that to a 12 year old girl um how could you do that and have absolutely no remorse for what you did and just shatter this girl's life so that's when it really started to hit me you know are there bad people um are there people um kind of beyond our love and compassion. And as a Christian, um, I think the answer to that question has to be no, right? Um, As a Christian, you can't believe that there are people just beyond us, beyond our love, not worthy of our compassion. Um, And I think to really get at that answer for me, it was thinking about what it means when you're saying someone's a bad person. I think when we say you're a bad person, it means you're this other, you're fundamentally different, from us, um, there's something about you that makes you like a monster, or that makes you unworthy of our love, or irredeemable. Someone just be cast aside, and that just can't be the Christian way of thinking. Like first, we're called to love everybody, right? It's not love your neighbor until they do a heinous thing. It's just love your neighbor. And when Jesus talks about, I think it was Nicodemus, um, saying, you know, it's easy. Um, to love people who are nice to you. Even the tax collector, or in our parlance, the student loan collector (laughs) can love people that are nice to them, right? Um, But it's much harder to love people that hurt you. So we're commanded to love with no condition, no matter what people do. And the second reason, I think, as Christians, we have to show love to everyone, no matter what they do, It's because I think Christianity would just fall apart if we didn't, right? Jesus came, as far as I know, to save everybody with this understanding that no one is beyond his saving. So if someone's irredeemable to us, then we're implicitly saying no one can save you. What you did is so bad, you're beyond saving. And if that's true, then Jesus just isn't who he said he is. So for those two reasons, I just strongly came to feel and feel that there are no bad people, right? But what does that mean in practical terms? And why is it my most important question? So I think in a lot of ways, it dictates um, underlying values of our society. Like If our society can start treating people who do these really horrible things with love and compassion, then imagine how it would trickle down and how we would treat everybody else, right? Like if you can treat someone who's killed someone or raped a little girl with love and compassion, then showing love and compassion for someone who cuts you off in traffic shouldn't be that difficult, right? Showing love to someone at work who really gets on your nerves shouldn't be that hard. Showing love to a spouse who calls you out in front of the church for bad morning breath. (laughs) You can get over these things. And, you know, the second reason, I think, is, you know, we talk about wanting our kingdom to come and earth to be as it is in heaven. I think that's a crucial step along that path. And I really wanted to name that in confession. I didn't get asked to do MMIQ. I actively reached out like, yo, I want to talk to the church about this issue. Because so much now about criminal justice reform and mass incarceration is in the news. But too frequently we talk about, well, people who were wrongfully convicted really deserve our love and compassion. Or these kind of low-level, non-violent drug offenders, yeah, they really deserve our compassion. And that's true. But if we just compartmentalize our compassion and don't have compassion for people who do bad things, then where are we really going? What does that say about our society if we're only willing to extend love and compassion to certain people? And look, that's not to say that people shouldn't be held accountable for the things that they do because they should. But that accountability, I think, has to be rooted in love, has to be rooted in an understanding that there are no bad people and that everybody is worth saving. Thank you.
0: One of the reasons I love this series is that I get ministered to um, by, by you all. Um, so thank you, um, Akai, and Eric, and Darren, for sharing um, your most important question. Um, the space that we have after this, this talk time is usually a time where we give space for responding. Um, so um, I want to invite the band to come on up. Um, there are a number of ways um, that you can respond. Uh, in a moment, one of the, the ways that we'll do it together is to, is to take communion together. The thing that binds us together is, is Jesus Christ. And, and when we take communion together, we remember the Lord's death until he comes again. We remember his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us, who, us who still do bad things. There may be other ways that you want to respond. Um, One of the, the, there may have been something that was said that stirred something in you, a thought, your own question, um, something that you want prayer for. Um, In each corner, we have um, prayer counselors available, um, and I asked the speakers to also make themselves available. If there's a particular thing that you want to ask one of them to pray over you for, you're welcome to do that. Um I want to invite you as you're able to stand, and the invitation is to come to the table when you're ready to come to the table. There may be stuff that you need to work out that you need to think through that you need to be that you might need to receive prayer before you take communion. That's okay. We'll wait for you. You might need to talk to the person that you're with or ask them to pray for you. We'll wait. We'll wait for you. Whatever it is that God is, is speaking to you, whatever God has laid on your heart, don't ignore it. Whatever that seed of discomfort might be, Press into it. Whatever the question that is coming to your mind, sit with it. Don't push it down. Don't pretend it's not there. Ask the Spirit of God to show you something. Let's pray. God, you speak in in ways that are both comforting and discomforting. You grow us in ways that are both joyful and and difficult. And so, Lord, in whatever ways that you are moving this morning, in, in whatever ways that you have spoken this morning, would we not let it go? Would we not... Uh, push it away because it's hard or because we're not sure what to do with it but would you help us to hold him? would you help us to hold those spaces Uh, would you help us to sit still when all we want to do is run away would you help us to know that we are loved when when all we want to do is hide our faces And God, as we take communion together, may we remember what you have done for us to show us your love, so that we might love others, and that we might know we are loved ourselves. God, seal your love on us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.